Hey, my name is Jordan Sleed, and welcome to the Rediscovering Podcast. I love to write, and I'm doing my best to follow Jesus. So this is just a place for me to share things that I have been writing, thinking about, and most importantly, trying to live as I walk with God and rediscover what holiness is. Thank you so much for joining me. Here's today's episode. So recently I've had kind of a revival of interest in art as a whole, and I've been learning a lot more about its importance, which is weird if you know me, because if you know me, music is a huge part of my life, has been for a while. I've been making a living playing music in some regard for quite a while now, so there have been some... (laughs) hidden beliefs I didn't realize in me that kind of went along the lines of art isn't that important, Um, art isn't impactful, art is a luxury for the upper class, which of course if you look all over the world, all over history, that's not entirely true. You'll find people singing and all kinds of different art forms in cultures that aren't necessarily using it in a consumeristic way but for some reason in me there is this belief that you know art is cool and I I love doing it but I don't really think it's that important and uh, I've I've begun to repent of that so recently I read Mako Fujimura's book Silence and Beauty Um, Mako is an artist he's a Japanese American artist who does these incredible paintings that I don't really have time to explain, but he's also an incredible writer. And this book, Silence and Beauty, he's reflecting on Japanese culture and Shusaku Endo's book, Silence. Both of those things take up most of the real estate of the book, and those are two things that don't particularly interest me, and they definitely don't serve a surface-level practical purpose for my everyday life. So it was cool to read this book, because usually everything I read, I want it to be like something I can apply right away, or something that directly uh, coincides with what I feel like I'm learning or praying about. And I, I felt drawn to this book, and I felt drawn to his work, so I read it, and yeah, a lot of the a lot of the writing was about things that I wouldn't necessarily do a lot of research about. But it was very well written. Anyway, the book did what I think all good art does, and it invited me to experience and see the world through a more gracious lens. It invited me to repentance. And of course, that's a loaded word. I know that word can mean a lot of things, make us feel a lot of ways. But what I mean by repentance is not this fearful, sobbing moment of deep guilt followed by a promise to God that holds about as much weight as the average New Year's resolution. I'm not talking necessarily about that kind of moment. I'm talking about what I think Jesus most often meant when he invited people to repent and believe. I'm talking about opening my eyes to the reality that God's kingdom is at hand, and it's different than my everyday kingdoms of ambition and self-preservation and apathy. And There's a new way I get to see and live in the world in light of God's kingdom being at hand. I'm talking about that kind of repentance, which can lead to moments 
of being on your face or it can be, you know, a little moment that happens 15 times in an hour, like, like it often is for me. But the connection between art and repentance isn't apparent at first glance. I know that. I tend to think of repentance as the nitty-gritty, deep, real work of discipleship to Jesus. And then I think of art as kind of an added bonus to life, like I said. Sometimes I think of it just as entertainment. And it's hard for me to believe that art is at all useful, especially in matters of discipleship to Jesus. For some reason, there's that belief in me that it's entertainment, it's not real, serious stuff. Again, I say this as a person who is naturally bent toward creativity and art, and especially in music. I've, I've been drawn to this my whole life, but for some reason this is in me. And I think what Mako Fujimura does with his art and his writing in this book specifically is he paints a picture of life with God, not denying the reality that we live in, but attempting to see the reality we live in through the redemptive lens of Christ. And I, inevitably, once exposed to somebody else's life experience with the same God I claim to follow, and faced with the choice to either double down entirely on my way of seeing things and my preconceived notions, or I can look at this book, this thing in front of me, this person, and allow their perspective to affect me. And that's what I felt led to do with this book. And I'm really already seeing the fruit of that, just in the way that I think about my vocation and art as a whole and mission and life in God's kingdom. But yeah, we're always invited when we when we see the inside of somebody else who claims to follow Jesus that somehow confronts our own systems, we're, we're invited to repentance. And to stand at this kind of crossroads whether consciously or not, is to have the opportunity to practice repenting and believing. The most mind-boggling thing about repentance is that, though it is essentially stripping away what I once thought of as security, it inevitably leads to deeper trust in the true security of God. In all good art, and I know that's a subjective word anyway, but in all art that is fulfilling this purpose, there is this invitation to the viewer or the reader or the listener to repentance in some way. I think what art is wonderfully capable of doing is leveling the playing field between the artist and the viewer, because art is by nature this vulnerable revealing of the true nature of the heart of the speaker or writer or musician, the creator of it. Uh, just as the heavens declare the glory of God, like the Psalms say, the, the things that people create reveal something about who they are. So what it does when it is this vulnerable thing that happens is art levels the playing field. It puts me in the same room as the person who wrote it, and they're not talking down to me anymore. I'm experiencing life through their lens. One major problem I notice in my own heart when somebody calls me to repent is that, you know, well-meaning teachers, pastors, peers, and parents unwittingly create a hard line of demarcation between the preacher and the preached to. The person calling me to repentance can cause me to believe 
they're on this moral high ground, and that'll induce this shameful response in me. And if I feel shame, I'm much more likely to hide than engage. Thus, what I need is not the tone of a superior to awaken my need to change direction, but often I need the tone of somebody who is completely void of insecurity. I need the voice of Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. If I'm called to rethink the nature of my life, to repent and believe, I need the voice of a humble and secure Savior who's able to empathize with my weaknesses, as the writer of Hebrews says. And as I spend more time with art, I see that at its best it communicates to us with this kind of tone, this humble invitation that's secure in where it's coming from, even if it's expressing insecurity, oddly enough. Anybody can tell me that I think God is this, but I really need to think instead that he's that. But if I am not communicated to by somebody who understands why I think God is fill-in-the-blank, I'm more likely to just defend my view and walk away than I'm likely to come to a soul-to-soul conversation of repentance and love. Even if the person critiquing me is right, I'm much less likely to receive what they're saying if they don't understand why I think what I think about God. And the artist somehow plays devil's advocate to invite the audience to the side of good. (laughs) Weirdly enough, they reveal the holes in my arguments and my way of thinking, but in a humble and loving tone, in a way that invites me to see the world with them, not just tells me about what they think. Any great work of art that has changed my thinking and feeling and living has first done so by standing on the same ground as me. It's done so by understanding me. Think about that word, understanding. It's standing on the same ground as me. It's not calling itself my superior, but it's, it's like Jesus walking in humility toward me. With some reflections on the Japanese persecution of Christians that went on for about 200 years and reflections on another book that was reflecting on that time period and a lot of history that I didn't necessarily feel drawn to in the first place, this artist, this writer, a 61-year-old man who I've never met, actually stood on level ground with me. And on this level ground, I began to see the way that I see the world. I began to see the way that I think about art as unimportant. And he began to challenge that view in me. And I began to see that though I follow Jesus, I'm often tempted to follow a very insecure version of him. And by insecure, I don't mean sheepish and kind of reserved, but I mean really risk-averse and pedantic. The Jesus that I'm quick to mentally construct is one who is always afraid that his kingdom is at risk. Rather than thinking of the Daniel 7 reality that there is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and a kingdom that will never be destroyed, I tend to imagine Jesus to be incredibly worried about whether or not my everyday decisions will make his kingdom come or not. And of course, this is a powerful lie because it's built on something true. I, I don't realize I'm thinking this way. I think a lot of us think this way and we don't realize we're walking in this kind of belief that God is that insecure. 
But I think it's such a powerful lie because it's built on something kind of true. The truth is that God does invite me to co-labor with him. I confer on you a kingdom, says Jesus to his disciples. But one thing I'm certain of is that God doesn't invite me to collaborate with him under the motivation of fear. Love is always the method of partnership God chooses, and love requires trust. My every action will lead to exhaustion if I'm motivated primarily by fear. But under the influence of a deep trust that God is this beautiful artist weaving together even the most gruesome periods of history, uprooting and replanting all the raw materials of suffering and joy, and doing so for the purpose of this tapestry of grace called His everlasting kingdom, I find the rest that I long for. In becoming a student of Fujimura and Endo during the length of reading this book, I began to step out of the life of following an insecure God and into the life of the confident and secure Father that is displayed in his willingness not to even defend himself from dying. See, what this art did is it invited me to repent of my insecure vision of God and the ways that that might lead me to think and act throughout the day. And it invited me to see a God who is an artist, who paints things that he may not have even intended, and who uses things that are all kinds of messy mistakes and paints them into this tapestry of his kingdom. Let me read this quote from the book. If we are to embrace hope despite what encompasses us, the impossibility of life and the inevitability of death, then we must embrace a vision that will endure beyond our failures. We should not journey toward a world in which solutions to the problems are sought, but a world that acknowledges the possibility of the existence of grace beyond even the greatest of traumas, the ground zero realities of our lives. In such a journey, evil is no longer equal to the good, but the stench of death all around us, pulverized by even atomic powers, will remind us that it is despite ourselves that grace and restoration can take place. In a surrender to the inevitable, we dethrone evil of its power. If art can create this opportunity for a big shift like that in my worldview, it certainly has the potential to change the trajectory of anybody's life, of your life. And if it has that potential to invite us to follow Jesus' invitation, to repent and believe, then it has the potential to draw out the kingdom of God into our actual everyday lives. So I, I have to apologize for thinking of art as this upper middle class luxury that has little to no practical use. It's impractical only by my modern Western standards, which typically equate practicality with forcefulness and control of outcomes. Prayerfully crafted art, though, can become a wonderful invitation to repentance. And repentance is never a waste of time in God's kingdom. And I find even in such a truth that God is not a God nearly as concerned with practicality as we may think him to be. For us to live as though that is his primary concern is to succumb to the same insecurity that we believe he possesses. 
God is gracious enough to let his kingdom come through the beauty of a painting, the heart-gripping nature of a story, and, as Fujimura states, even the silent redemption of the deepest traumas in history.